Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most, because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D. Today, I'll be covering the case of Kimberly Simon in Utica, New York. Let's get right to it. Nineteen eighty five was a heck of a year. Madonna, Whitney Houston, Wham, and Foreigner topped the Billboard charts. Back to the Future was still in movie theaters, and Tommy Hilfiger had just started his clothing line. Aretha Franklin's voice was legally declared as one of Michigan's natural resources that year, and Queen's Live Aid performance at Wembley Stadium would go down as one of rock and roll's most historic. In the fall of 85, the news was dominated by the discovery of the wreckage of the Titanic, found about 370 miles off the coast of Newfoundland, Canada. And Kimberly Simon, better known as just Kim to her friends and family, had just started her junior year at Whitesboro High School in Utica, New York. According to RememberKimSimon.com, Kim was a typical teenager of the 80s. She loved music, football games, talking on the phone for hours, and going to the mall. She was stunning with strawberry blonde Farrah Fawcett-inspired hair. At 16, the world was her oyster. She was doing well in school, she was pretty, she had friends, supportive parents, and a boyfriend. All the things that a young teenage girl dreams of. It was an unseasonably warm fall day on September 18, 1985, when Kim called her best friend, Linda Firioni, and asked her if she wanted to go for a walk. Linda and Kim were like peas and carrots, and they had been pretty much since the moment they met about five years earlier. Kim lived right on the outskirts of Marcy, New York. It was a safe place, and the girls would frequently walk to and from to meet up with friends and hang out. All the teenagers from the town did, and there were no concerns. And Kim just didn't want to go for a walk. She had a plan, a plan to surprise her boyfriend, Rick. According to Linda, as she spoke on Disruption Network, Kim called her at about 5.30 p.m. and asked if she wanted to walk down and meet her at Whitesboro Middle School, and then together they'd walk on down to surprise Rick. Of course, Linda was game. Shortly after the call, she walked down to the middle school and waited for Kim to arrive. It wouldn't have taken Kim long to walk from her home on River Road, down Mohawk Street, and to the school. It's a little over a two-mile walk, and Kim had told Linda to meet her there between 6.15 and 6.30. Linda made it to the middle school, but Kim wasn't there yet, so she sat and waited. 6.30 came and went, but there was no sign of Kim. Linda began to worry. This wasn't like her, so she called Kim's dad and told him that Kim hadn't made it yet, but he reassured her that she was on her way. Several minutes passed, and Kim never showed up. And Linda wasn't the only one who was worried for Kim. As it turned out, according to her boyfriend Rick, as he spoke to Talk of the Town, he too had called Kim around 6 and spoke with her dad, who told him that he had just missed her and he'd be seeing her soon. It was now 7 o'clock, 
and Rick hadn't seen or heard from Kim. He didn't live too far away either, and if she had left around 6, she should have definitely been there by now. So Rick started walking around town, looking for her. Around 7.30, he talked to Linda, who, of course, was also looking for her. When they realized that neither of them had seen her, they both knew that something was wrong. But what? What could have possibly happened on a two-mile walk at six in the evening? A walk Kim had taken plenty of times before. Linda called Kim's parents back, and once they realized that Kim wasn't with her boyfriend Rick or her best friend, and they knew she had left the house, both Kim and Linda's dads headed out to search. At about 11.30 that night with no sign of Kim, her parents reported her missing and law enforcement began searching as well. The search continued throughout the night and into the next morning when someone told Rick that there was a heavy police presence on Mohawk Street, the exact street Kim would have walked down the night prior to meet up with Linda. Rick hurried down to see what was going on, hoping they had found Kim and that she was okay. He made it to the location and started walking towards the officers. They yelled and asked him to identify himself. And when they told him he was Kim's boyfriend, they asked him to leave. At that point, Rick knew without a shadow of a doubt that something horrible had happened. And he was right. In a wooded area just off Mohawk Street, officers found Kim Simon's body at approximately 11.24 a.m. She had been beaten, sexually assaulted, and strangled. Her family, her best friend Linda, her boyfriend Rick, and the entire community were beyond devastated. Kim was so young and so full of life. She had no enemies, so who could have possibly done this? The brutal murder made headlines across upstate New York and beyond. But no one was as affected as the small communities of Whitesboro, Utica, and Marcy. Things like this just didn't happen there. Everyone was on edge, and the pressure to get whoever was responsible was immediate. Investigators didn't believe the area where Kim's body had been found was where the brutal assault and murder had taken place, so they expanded their search to the surrounding areas. It wasn't long before they found something. Well, several somethings. Some of the contents of Kim's purse were found along Clinton Street near Carolyn Court Apartments. And pictures that Kim would have had in her purse were found ripped up in several locations throughout town. According to Linda, while most of the contents of Kim's purse were found, the actual purse was never located. And she knew exactly what the purse looked like because she had a matching one that she showed investigators. Police also made note that one of Kim's shoes was seen along the Sockwhite Creek near what was called the Three Bears site. The Three Bears site was a small wooded area that was a popular party spot for some of the local teens, a spot that none of Kim's close inner circle or Kim herself was familiar with prior to the murder. It's unclear from any of the reporting I could find whether police actually recovered the shoe or if a witness just described seeing it. The shoe wasn't the only thing witnesses came forward to talk about. There were plenty of witnesses describing all kinds of things. One of the stories was about a husky, blonde-haired man driving a red truck. People came forward and said that just after 6 that evening, they had seen Kim talking to this blonde-haired man on Mohawk Street. Other witnesses claimed to have seen Kim at this party or that one. There were so many different stories. 
Another witness described hearing screams at another popular teen hangout called the Water Tower near Hearts Hill Elementary School, which was just across from the Three Bears site. There were even some whispers around town about a satanic party. But I mean, that was too crazy to be true. Police narrowed in on that story about the man in the red truck. That man was quickly identified as another Marcy resident, 19-year-old Stephen Barnes. Stephen had graduated a year prior, but attended Whitesboro High along with Kim, Rick, and Linda. Police brought him in for questioning two days after Kim's body had been found. When asked what he knew about Kim's murder, he told them he didn't know anything and in fact had an alibi. Barnes claimed that he had gone to a bowling alley that night around 6 p.m. and that others had seen him there. He voluntarily took a polygraph and allowed police to search his truck. Investigators said that the polygraph came back inconclusive and that evidence had been seized from the truck. It appeared they believed Barnes was their guy, but they didn't have enough to hold him on, so he was released. According to the Observer Dispatch, the community gathered to honor Kim's life. The memorial services lasted over three days. Kim's parents did their best in the middle of their grief and loss to help support her closest friends and allowed them to take part in planning the services. Her boyfriend Rick chose the Led Zeppelin song Stairway to Heaven to be played since Kim had a love for the band. She was remembered as the bright, beautiful, and caring soul she was, the girl whose favorite subject was math, who was described as quiet and a bit reserved until you got to know her, but always humble and caring. The senseless loss sent shockwaves through all of Whitesboro High. It was the end of teenage innocence as they knew it. And while everyone tried to pick up the pieces and move on, things were never the same again. And there was still a killer on the loose in their community. Days turned into weeks, weeks into months, and months into years, with no answers and no major breaks in the case. But even as time passed, Kim's unsolved murder was on the forefront of everyone's mind. They wanted justice, and the police were still looking at Stephen Barnes. And it wasn't just the police. A cloud of suspicion over Barnes continued to brew. People in town were talking about it. So much so that at one point, according to Rick, he showed up to Barnes' birthday party and confronted him. You see, Rick and Steve weren't friends, but they were acquaintances. Rick recalled on Talk of the Town that when he confronted Stephen, he had looked him square in the eyes and said he didn't have anything to do with Kim's murder. And at that moment, Rick believed him, but investigators were closing in on Barnes. Two years after Kim's murder, investigators brought Stephen Barnes back in, and this time they collected blood, saliva, and hair samples to compare to evidence found on Kim's body. This was the late 80s, and DNA testing did exist, but it was in its infancy, and while some comparisons could be made, it was nowhere near what we know today. But at the time, detectives must have felt whatever they had on Barnes was pretty solid, because according to court documents, in March of 1988, Barnes was arrested and charged with the rape, sodomy, and murder of 16-year-old Kimberly Simon. A little over a year later, the case went to trial. The prosecution presented its side. 
Witnesses testified that they had seen both Barnes and Kim at around 6 p.m. on Mohawk Street the night she went missing. And then there was the physical evidence. Hairs found in Barnes' truck were compared to Kim Simon's hair, and soil samples also taken from the truck were compared to samples from the location her body had been found. The hairs and the soil were found to be similar. An imprint made in dirt on the fender of Barnes' truck was lifted and compared to the fabric of the jeans Kim was wearing at the time of her death, and the lab found that the two were consistent. And then there was the informant. A jailhouse informant testified that Barnes had actually confessed to him while they were both being held at the Oneida County Jail. Needless to say, things weren't looking good for Barnes. But when it was time for the defense to present its case, the attorneys tried to poke holes in the prosecution's theory, starting with the fact that Barnes' story had never changed. He had always maintained that he was at the bowling alley around the time Kim disappeared. Multiple witnesses backed his story up, including his brother-in-law, who testified that he saw a young woman matching Kim's description getting into a truck along the road that was clearly not Barnes' truck. The defense pointed out that while the hairs found in the truck were similar to Kim's, there was no direct match and further no hairs matching Barnes were ever found on Kim's body. The soil samples from the scene used to compare to those taken from Barnes' truck weren't collected until a year after Kim's murder. And besides, Barnes had been in that immediate area. He was a local. So wouldn't you expect the dirt found on his truck to have what was referred to in court as similar characteristics? The blood typing and limited DNA testing had come back inconclusive, and plenty of people owned the same jeans Kim was wearing that night. In fact, Linda would later state in her interview with Disruption Network that the jeans were Xena jeans, a brand that was wildly popular in the area at that time. It seemed that practically every girl at Whitesboro High owned a couple pairs. And that informant? He and Barnes had only been on the same cell block for a week. They never shared a cell, and when it came to basic details like when and where Barnes' supposed confession had taken place, the informant testified that he couldn't remember. But on June 2, 1989, Stephen Barnes was convicted of first-degree rape, first-degree sodomy, and second-degree murder, and later sentenced to 25 years to life behind bars. With Barnes in prison, the community breathed a sigh of relief. Many felt justice had been served and a cold-blooded killer had been taken off the streets. But not everyone, because not everyone believed that Stephen Barnes had killed Kim Simon. In 1993, the Innocence Project came on board and started representing Barnes. Three years later, in 1996, DNA testing was done on evidence from the crime scene, but the test came back inconclusive. The technology just wasn't there yet. Ten long years passed, but in 2007, Barnes' case was reopened by the Innocence Project, and Oneida County District Attorney Scott McNamara agreed to conduct advanced DNA testing. According to the Innocence Project, this advanced DNA testing did yield conclusive results, and none of the DNA found matched Stephen Barnes. After serving nearly 20 years in prison, Stephen Barnes was freed on November 25, 2008, 
Months later, he was officially exonerated. District Attorney McNamara spoke out to CNY Central, stating, If this technology existed in 1985, Mr. Barnes would have never been arrested. He didn't say convicted. The man said Stephen Barnes would have never even been arrested. A man who spent his 20s, 30s, and the early part of his 40s behind bars for a crime he had no part in. Barnes later sat down with founding board member of the Innocence Project, Jason Flom, on the podcast Wrongful Conviction, and talked about what it's like to spend the better part of your life behind bars as an innocent man. I highly recommend you check it out. It's episode number 59, and it's eye-opening. A wrongful conviction is tragic all the way around, because not only did Stephen Barnes spend two decades in prison, an innocent man, but for 20 years, Kim's family and friends were given a false sense of peace and justice. And for 20 years, the person or persons responsible for the brutal murder of a 16-year-old girl whose life was really just beginning were walking free on the street, never being held accountable for what they had done. Linda Firioni spoke out to the Observer Dispatch after Barnes' exoneration and said, I never expected that this would be reopened and that Barnes didn't do it. And that makes your head spin. You think your killer's doing time for 20 years, and that turns out not to be the case. It was hard enough for Kim's loved ones to grieve her loss and sit through a trial. But this? This was something they never prepared for. With Barnes' exoneration, the Oneida County District Attorney's Office assembled a task force and reopened Kim's case. According to D.A. McNamara, two investigators from his office and an investigator from both the Utica and Rome Police Departments were all assigned to the case. Of course, attorneys for Barnes and the Innocence Project turned over what evidence they had obtained over the years, and the task force got to work. And then there was that DNA evidence that exonerated Barnes. As it turned out, those results had identified the DNA profiles of two unknown males. And investigators were running them through databases and working with the crime lab in search of a match. They asked the public to come forward with any information they had. The story was hot in the presses, but after some time, it began to fade from the headlines yet again. That was until March of 2010, 16 months after the task force began investigating when the Observer Dispatch reported that Kim's case was going to be featured on America's Most Wanted. Also going to be featured on AMW was a new theory on what investigators with the task force believed happened. It was something heard in whispers around town all the way back in the beginning, and investigators now believed they had evidence to support it. They believed there were five possible suspects, and since they were only possible suspects, they wouldn't be named on the national TV show. But investigators said that locals at the time of the murder could easily figure out their identities. The five possible suspects ranged in age from 16 to 23 at the time. And the reason their identities could be easily figured out was because they had built quite the reputation around town as being, quote, deeply involved in the practice of satanic worship. Investigators further described them as a group of young men 
who worshipped the devil, tortured cats, used hallucinogenic drugs, and sexually abused women. And they weren't shy about it either. District Attorney's Office investigator Richard Ferrucci stated to the outlet, To the people they were close with, they did not try to hide the fact that they were involved in this sort of stuff. It was sort of a shock value, and they really enjoyed putting that out there for people to know about. He went on to reveal that witness accounts placed Kim at a party with this group of young men on the night she was murdered. At that popular teen hangout known as the Three Bears site, the same area where police initially reported one of her shoes being seen. According to RememberKimSimon.com, some of those witnesses also claimed that Kim appeared drugged and out of it. Kim had absolutely no history of using drugs, and those closest with her maintained that she would have never willingly been at this party with that group, especially considering the fact that she had plans with her two closest friends at that time. Investigator Ferrucci also added that although witnesses described the types of activities that were going on at the Three Bears site, it was still unclear whether Kim's murder was a result of any satanic ritual. And investigators were, quote, still operating under the belief that this whole murder is something that went terribly wrong very quickly. It was somebody that had gone too far. The Utica Observer Dispatch spoke with Stephen Barnes' former attorney, Edward Kaminsky, who revealed details about an interview he had with one of the men of this group all the way back in the early 80s. A man who was named in the article, but since he's never been considered an official suspect, I won't be naming him here. We'll just call him Junior for clarity purposes. I'll also be sure to link that article in the show notes if you happen to be curious. You're welcome. Anyhow, Kaminsky had been tipped off about Junior after Barnes' initial arrest in March of 1988 by an inmate at the Oneida County Jail named John Colberstein III. Colberstein had been convicted of killing three people in 1987, one of them an eight-year-old little girl. The convicted killer told the attorney that he believed Junior and another man might have had something to do with Kim's murder. And jail records confirmed that Junior had been jailed in October of 1987 for possession of stolen property. He was eventually released in late January of 1988 and then back in jail a week later for resisting arrest and possession of a hypodermic needle. As we know, Koberstein was a convicted triple murderer and was also confirmed to have been behind bars with Junior in Oneida County. In a stunning twist of events, both men were in jail when Stephen Barnes was wrongfully arrested for the murder of Kim Simon. Of course, hearing all this, Barnes' attorney arranged for an interview with Junior. Kaminsky recalled the details to the outlet. He had met with Junior outside of a Utica supermarket to talk. It was dark out, and as they talked, Junior fiddled with a butterfly knife. And what did Junior want to talk about? Well, according to Kaminsky, Junior was consumed with the thought of killing and death, and he really liked to talk about it. He was so consumed, in fact, that he carried around what Kaminsky described as a book of death. Junior spoke about boiling cat skulls on the stove and strangling a man with a piano wire. While Junior never admitted any involvement in Kim's murder, he never denied it either. 
The entire interview was disturbing to say the very least and left Kaminsky so unsettled that he was double-checking locks at both his home and office. Junior would later serve serious prison time after pleading guilty to setting properties on fire and taking part in a whole-ass arson-for-profit insurance scheme. But investigators wouldn't get another chance to talk to Junior because he had recently died. His cause of death wasn't listed, but he was only 47 years old. His obituary on Legacy.com is four sentences long, with the last one stating that there would be no services. Do with that information what you will. Again, investigators didn't name suspects or even people of interest, but investigator Ferrucci did confirm that a possible suspect had recently died, and he was one of the 960 people who had been interviewed in the 1980s by investigators. It was also revealed that they were awaiting final test results comparing DNA found on Kim's body with DNA from several people of interest. It seemed the investigation was heating up yet again, and that Kim Simon would finally get the justice she desperately deserved. But time ticked on. There were no major breaks in the case, or at least nothing that was reported on. And again, Kim's story faded from the headlines. However, it never faded from the minds of those who knew and loved Kim, especially her very best friend, Linda Furioni. And so, in September of 2020, on the 35-year anniversary of the murder, Linda, along with friends and classmates of Kim's, launched a campaign to find Kim's killer. A GoFundMe was set up which raised money to create signs and flyers to be distributed throughout the local area. They also designed a webpage called RememberKimSimon.com, posting information about Kim's case and offering another outlet for anyone who knew anything to come forward. The group spoke out to the media, revealing that they had a pretty good idea of who they suspected had murdered Kim, and one of them was dead but there were others. And there's one thing that everyone involved in the investigation know for sure. Multiple people know exactly what happened that night. According to Linda, they didn't come forward at the time because they were afraid. She went on to say that a lot of people were threatened by those involved. And we have to remember that back then, the witnesses and those who likely knew what had happened were teens and very young adults. But it's been over 30 years. Everyone is all grown up now, and it is far beyond time for whoever is responsible to be held accountable. And while some of those individuals who know the truth may not have revealed all they know to police, they have spoken to others. The important facts of Kim's case that investigators and her family and friends want people to remember are listed on the Remember Kim Simon website. Kimberly Simon was last seen leaving her home at 9197 River Road in Marcy, shortly before 6 p.m. September 18, 1985, as she headed to meet Linda at Whitesboro Junior High School on Route 69. She was reported missing at 11 p.m. that night. According to investigators, the last hours of Simon's life 
were believed to have been spent with at least five individuals known for devil worship and their dark obsession with death. Screams were heard at another hangout called the Water Tower near Hearts Hills Elementary School in Whitesboro. One of Simon's shoes was also seen along the creek near the Three Bears site. Some of her belongings were found along Clinton Street near Carolyn Court Apartments. It's also important to remember that everyone who knew Kim strongly believes she would not have gotten into a vehicle with a stranger and wouldn't have willingly gone to any party. It's likely that these individuals were at least acquainted with her. Investigators are still looking for that one piece of information that breaks this case wide open. I'd like to leave you with the words of retired Oneida County DA's office investigator, Jim Helmer, who even after his retirement still seeks to solve Kim's case. His words were published at the Observer Dispatch in 2020. As a former chief investigator with the Oneida County District Attorney's Office and assigned to the task force reinvestigating the death of Kim Simon, I direct this editorial towards those who are responsible or have direct knowledge of Kim's death. Do the nightmares, thoughts, and visions still come to you at night? Is it hard to tell a loved one what you are going through? Do abusive amounts of alcohol and drugs help you deal with Kim's screams and fighting back? How many times have you wanted to tell someone other than a family member, good friend or girlfriend, about what happened that night? How hard is it to carry on a normal life or relationship knowing what you know? I have personally interviewed several people who you have told about that night. I retired in 2012, and I still think of Kim a lot. And I'm just an investigator that took a second look into her death. I can't imagine the overwhelming weight on your mind over what happened. Did you ever seriously think about a young teenager who spent 19 years in state prison for a crime you know he didn't commit? Did you ever think about Mr. and Mrs. Simon or Kim's brother Todd throughout the years and the gut-wrenching void that they must have? You can continue to do what you have been doing for 35 years, but what quality of life do you have? And will the nightmares, thoughts, and visions stop? Certain people have died that you know and they have gone to meet their maker, but you wake up every morning personally knowing of that horrible incident. Believe me, I'm done begging for information and I'm done apologizing to Kim at her gravesite. I know who you are, and I know a lot about your life. No longer in law enforcement, I'm just a 63-year-old father of two daughters who wants to know what happened. Is there more to it than what people think? As a retired investigator and working on cold cases, I would have preferred that after the reinvestigation, even though thorough, that we were unable to find a suspect or suspects. Knowing who you are and your involvement and not being able to do anything about it haunts me to the core. The anniversary of her death has passed and the days will continue to come and go. Months will come and months will go, but I can guarantee two things. I'm still going to know who is responsible for Kim's death and you are still going to hear her screams.
Jim Helmer, retired Oneida County investigator. There is a $5,000 reward for information on Kim's case. You can contact Jim Helmer at jim.r.helmer at gmail.com or the current investigator Dave Matruli by calling 315-864-1655. Or if you wish to remain anonymous, call the New York State Crime Stoppers at 1-866-313-TIPS. I'll be sure to link all of this in the show notes. You can also go to RememberKimSimon.com to donate to the GoFundMe. The group is still very active in their search for the truth. As always, you can find more information on this case or any of the others I've covered on my Instagram at least underscore of these or my Facebook at least of these podcast. New episodes drop every Thursday. Make sure you hit that subscribe button because I'll be bringing you an all new case next week. You can finally get all your episodes ad-free just the way you like them for just $2 a month. And as a member of Patreon, you'll be the first to be notified when new tiers will be launched with exclusive episodes and a few bonus surprises. Head on over to patreon.com slash least of these to support the show today. I'll also post a link in the show notes. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, be good to each other.